It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everyone. We are back at it here on the Airhead 247 podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's part two of our conversation with Pokey Parmage this week, who you'll recall from last time worked for Philip Funnel Motorcycles in Vancouver, British Columbia, back in the early and mid-1970s. We'll rejoin our conversation with him here in a minute. Want to dip into the email inbox here and say thanks to Max in California for writing. He sent a note with the story of finding a first-generation R80GS for sale a few years ago, called it his COVID bike. It had been abandoned and was in a pretty bad way. So Max, good work saving that bike getting it back on the road. Well done. Glad you're tuning in and enjoying the program. We've got a few months left with our BMW MOA free digital membership promotion. As noted last time, we're about halfway to our goal of 200 new members. So if you have not taken advantage of the free membership offer, please consider doing so. It's valid for all Airhead 247 fans anywhere in the world. You don't have to live in the United States to join visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEADS247 to join. All this information in the description section of all our podcast episodes, so you can find that there as well. Remember, your free membership helps support the work and effort we put into producing the program here. So again, please consider joining if you've not done so already. William Plam is off this week, but he'll return next time for another Tech Talk episode. In the meantime, if you have a parts epiphany while listening to this episode, which is highly likely, odds are you'll find exactly what you need at Boxer2Valve.com. Thanks to William and the crew at Boxer2Valve for being a part of the program and supporting our efforts here. Okay, so we rejoined Pokey this week and set the time machine dials for Munich in the mid-1970s. Pokey tells us about touring the BMW Motorcycle Factory and attending BMW Motorcycle Tech School. So uh, I would imagine uh, while you were there, part of that included a tour of the factory where they made the bikes. It would have, uh, except that was being done in um, Berlin. Oh, okay. I was in Munich. Okay. Oh, okay. That's I right. Was- yes. I was able to see some of the uh, the, the car manufacturing mm-hmm. and the car painting and stuff like that. I did walk through the uh, the car portion, but yeah, the um, the motorcycle portion I I did not see. Interesting. Have you ever? I've mentioned this a few times on some previous episodes. Have you happened to see uh, on? I believe it's accessible via YouTube, if not some other places. But there's an interesting uh, maybe seven or eight minute film that somebody uh, produced in uh, France uh, years ago. I want to say it was around 1975 
um, with some film footage of the factory um, uh, in Berlin uh, where the uh, motorcycles that were being made, you know, engines put together. Have you seen any of that footage uh, on YouTube? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't see I didn't see it on YouTube. My first introduction of what was happening in the Berlin factory was uh, in the museum uh, in Munich. Okay. And when I went into the museum in Munich, they had a in the absolute upstairs. It was it was shaped kind of like a spiral, so that there were no stairs. You you just kept walking up this slightly slanted um, uh, walkway, and there'd be all the displays all the way up. And in the top, they were showing um, a film of the manufacturing in Munich, in uh, Berlin, yeah. as well as uh, some race bikes and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's where I first saw it. But yes, I've, I've seen some of the ones on YouTube as well. Yeah, yeah. That's um, <clears throat> the other thing. I think there's a, a somebody put a Pink Floyd soundtrack uh, to it. I want to say it was Welcome to the Machine or Wish You Were Here or something uh, was, <laughs> is the soundtrack on there, which is kind of neat. Uh, it's you know it's it, it's fun to watch that footage from seeing how the motorcycles were put together then, uh, and compared to what we know now know as a, a you know a modern uh, factory uh, and production line, uh, it was a lot different. It was a lot more hands on. You know they're you know film of you know guys smoking cigarettes while they're you know putting wheels together and the ladies hand painting the stripes on the tank i mean it was a a different procedure and protocol for bike manufacturing back then than we know today oh yeah for sure but in 1974 when i went over there yeah um everything was pretty mechanized was it they the they still had the spray booths and as far as i could see the the Ladies were still doing the hand pinstriping. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, as, as I said, I didn't. I didn't go to Berlin and see things there. But with the uh, films and stuff that I saw in Munich, uh, they were still doing it that way. And of course, uh, the year previous, uh, Philip had gone to Berlin, and he was telling me about about how the uh, ladies just pick these tanks up and just go zip, 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 and yeah. they're done. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the neat things about uh, a, an R90S, uh, you know, you can still, if you have an original paint bike, you can still see uh, the pinstriper signatures on, on uh, some of those. In fact, um, the one I have has like a SR on it. Um, right. And, and uh, somebody, I found out when I, I was on Facebook for a short moment uh, and got off it real quickly, but one of the most useful things I ever learned from that was somebody actually in one of the BMW groups there on Facebook said they actually contacted uh, uh, BMW in uh, Munich or Berlin or whatever, not in the not too uh, recent past, and found out the lady's name was Sonia uh, Richardson or something. I can't remember the last name, but actually got a, a a woman's name with the initials and was able to, you know, get it down to that point, uh, which is, you know, a little, oh, that is so yeah, cool. yeah, no, elite, neat little bit of uh, history there. So, all right, Pokey. So, um, how I'll, we're sort of in the mid seventies here. You've been to Berlin, uh, or Munich rather, uh, the service schools. How did your tenure sort of wind down uh, with with Philip and work how much longer were you at the at the dealer there oh well to 
to, to step back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, when, when the R90S came out, uh, it didn't have um, hand-painted pinstriping on it. It had tape. That's right. So I just wanted to just wanted to catch that little bit right there. Yeah, you're exactly right. The gold tape uh, was what they used. Right. So going back to your question, yeah, um, I I was I stayed with Philip for quite a long time. Um, I think it was just a little bit over eight years. I think it was, but we, we'd already started receiving the um, uh, R100 RS. Oh yeah. Uh, bikes and uh yeah it was a little ways after that that uh, he and i went at loggerheads about wages because the uh, local local motorcycle dealerships were paying eight dollars an hour and i was still even though i was uh basically running the whole the whole back shop and as well as uh taking over the front from time to time i was only getting paid five an hour so uh yeah, I was asking for a raise. He wouldn't give it to me, so I basically told him to get stuffed and left. Uh, I can't blame you. I mean, he wouldn't even come off another dollar. No, no. But uh, before that occurred, there's there's an interesting thing. Well, I don't know if you'll find it interesting. Well, but, we'll see. Um, <laughs> one morning, one morning, I came into work. Cause we were running um, mechanics and have the shop open for uh, 13 hours a day. And uh, we were putting in three days a week, so we'd be—I'd be in there for three days running everything, and then somebody else would be. Well, Philip would be running in there for three days, and we'd we'd just keep doing that. So one day um, after the weekend, I came in, and uh, Philip wasn't there. There wasn't any money in the till, um, and I thought, well, he'll he'll be around, um, and he never came around. And it turns out that uh, he had gotten hit by a beaver lumber truck. Oh, good grief! Um, over on on Vancouver Island. So um, I didn't find out for a couple of days later that he was in the hospital. Uh, so every time I did repairs or that kind of thing, if somebody wanted to pay cash, I would send them down to the corner store to buy a chocolate bar or something so we could have change. <laughs> Practically speaking, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. During that period, um, it took him quite a long time. What it did was it took out his elbow, uh, the beaver lumber truck. He was looking for a place to camp, so he was riding along, looking off to the right, mm. and he was basically almost on the shoulder, and this beaver lumber truck, uh, the, the driver had fallen asleep, and he drifted over the line and cut Philip on the uh, on the left side of his fairing and then the bed of the truck caught him on the elbow mm. and took his elbow out and uh lots of people stopped and then you know from what i from what i understand because uh, i wasn't there of course but during that time i was taking care of everything at the shop i was making you know things i'd never done before i learned how to do but uh you know making uh Making paychecks and stuff like that. Yeah, and he was he was in no way no no shape to sign. So I'm afraid uh, I had to take some liberties there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got quite good at it. Yeah, and uh, the the bank oh, the fellow who was in charge of the bank suspected it, but uh, he let it go, well, he, knowing the situation. Good for him. Yeah, I would I would do things like uh, go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, sneak sneak chicken dinners into him in the hospital inside my coat, which was kind of weird because you go to this very busy hospital 
and everything's fine. You know, you've got it inside your coat. You you parked your motorcycle and you start up and you have to go up in the elevator. And I pop in the elevator. And by the time the elevator closed, the elevator door closes, there'd be, you know, six or seven other people in there all looking at each other, wondering where the smell of chicken is coming from. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. That is hard to keep under wraps, uh, even <laughs> under the heaviest of coats. The secret uh, herbs and spices, I'm sure, were getting into everybody's olfactories. And let me just say, parenthetically, oh, yeah. yeah, parenthetically, uh, you know, anybody who spent time in a hospital, whether it's, you know, uh, recuperating from an injury or a health issue or you're visiting somebody who has, boy, you just have to wonder, why can't they get the food right? Uh, being healthy and recovering from an injury or an illness, part of that is good diet and food. And for crying out loud, I mean, you'd think they would have decent food. I mean, it's still terrible to this day in most hospitals. But I, I digress. I digress. All right. So you made it up, uh, I guess it sounds like, uh, till 78 uh, when you decided you'd had enough. And you mentioned <clears throat> that was right around the time of the RS being introduced. So let's not gloss over that and just tell me what the introduction of that was like for you and how, you know, sort of how that was received and how the, the bike uh, as a new model and everything uh, fared uh, with any, you know, issues or teething issues or anything. What, what was that like when it came out? Well, in all honesty, I don't remember uh, any teething issues with that one. It mm -hmm. was, it was uh, a great bike right from the, right from the crate. Um, we, you know, we just did, did the usual surface to it and, and take them out. And, yeah, we, we didn't have any great problems with those. Um, but if you if you want to go back, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to remember things. If you want to go back a little bit to 1974 again yeah. uh, with the Slash 6 series, um, when they first came out, uh, we weren't allowed to service or sell any of the bikes that we had gotten in because there was a transmission problem. And uh, we had some rather irate customers who had bought a bike who came from uh, another province to pick it up, and we weren't allowed to let them have until these uh, transmissions arrived. And when the transmissions arrived, of course, we could do the exchange and send them on their way. But the other problem that was uh, plaguing bikes in 1974 was the uh, um, bolts for the flywheel were still yes. uh, the, the smaller bolts. Mm -hmm. And if somebody if somebody decided to uh, ride briskly and and uh, shift hard, they would actually knock the flywheel loose. And we had um, a few bikes come in where the uh, bolts had actually completely sheared. So uh, we had one particular customer who liked to ride rather briskly, um, playing playing race guy on the on the streets <laughs> and he knocked he knocked his loose and I think he was one of the ones that completely sheared it. Wow. But uh, that was a that was a thing for nineteen seventy four. Um so what we did to correct that is we'd take the crankshafts out and we would um send the crankshaft and the flywheel to a local machine shop and they would uh, resurface the um bolt holes in the uh, flywheel because they'd gotten all squished. And then they'd uh, put on the flywheel and then pin it. So was that something that you could then bill BMW for, or how, how was that 
what that's an additional as, cost. As I, as I, yeah, as I recall, we uh, we were able to build BMW for uh, for those repairs. Yeah, I rem- I know what you're referring to on those flywheel bolts. In fact, I think uh, I want to say I could be wrong here. I think this uh, R90s I have, which was a uh, build date of one seventy five, did have the larger uh, updated bolts. But if I'm yes, not, but, right? But still, if you were to now correct me if I'm wrong here, some of the earlier slash sixes and and slash fives would still today those use those smaller bolts, which I I think are still available, aren't they? Or am I mistaken there? Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, slash five series, the the R seventy five never uh, broke any of them loose. Yeah. So the, yeah, it wasn't a problem then. It was it wasn't until they introduced the nine hundred that uh, mm-hmm. it became a problem. Yeah. And halfway through the production of the nine hundred is when they started to started putting in the larger bolts. Yep. 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 Thankfully, uh, I had one that had the larger bolts in it, so that's good. Right. And for the for the Flash Five series, the bolts were, um, I believe, they were ten millimeter, but they were short. And for the early Slash Six models, they were still ten millimeter, but they were long. Yeah, and they had a little bit different sort of taper and shape to them, if I recall. Yeah, they were they were pretty close, but uh, the shoulder was just longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, partway through uh, through seventy four, I, I think after eight seventy four, they started producing them with the eleven millimeter bolts. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, you know, I I think a lot of aficionados of the 247 airhead will agree here that you know that sort of 77 78 r100 for a lot of folks was the the pinnacle to a certain degree of of the 247 engine where it wasn't detuned uh there wasn't uh, emissions or smog considerations taken into effect uh those bikes especially the r100s uh, had a particular sort of rumble, uh, at least this is my view, kind of a grumble and rumble to them, uh, a little less sort of refined feeling to a certain degree, I'm speaking esoterically here, uh, than than later model uh, bikes, subsequent bikes into the 80s and stuff. Uh, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. it's uh, It was the addition of all the... All the um smog equipment and mm-hmm. stuff like that that in a lot of cases made things worse um yeah it's uh i i really liked the um uh, rs when it first came out yeah it was a, a glorious bike and you could always tell the the early ones because they had the uh they had the purple stripes on the uh wheel rims yeah that's exactly right yeah that matched the uh paint stripe or matched the paint color Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. 
The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Thanks again to the BMW MOA for their support. Now back to our chat with Pokey Parmage. All right, Pokey, so... Gosh, I have to say, uh, what a fascinating uh, sort of bit of reminiscing there. Uh, what a rich history you had with those motorcycles, uh, you know, gosh, right from the outset of the series, uh, of the Slash 5 series, all the way up, uh, as you mentioned, into the mid-70s. Um, I, gosh, I mean, it sounds like we could do a whole other episode to keep going on, but I do want to get on to some other topics and questions here. Some things, you know, that we kind of discuss with uh, everybody who's on the program. Um, one, one thing I did want to ask you uh, is with the airheads uh, at the time, uh, and, you know, again, we're kind of referring to the mid-70s, but, you know, any era, I guess, just with your experience, what, uh, in your opinion, how, how do those differentiate themselves from other makes and models sort of as a whole? What, what makes the Airhead unique uh, and special to you compared to other uh, brands? Well, there's a lot of things that make it special for me, uh, just because of my, my history with them. Sure. But uh, the, the pinnacle of, of BMWs, building bikes, I think, for me, was the uh, 1973 R75-5, and it um, it impressed me in so many ways. Uh, I had a I had one, and I used to uh, ride rather briskly on it, and uh, folks, folks just couldn't keep up with the other bikes. Um, we had, uh, our, our parts were, were, you know, priced kind of the same, um, so I, I, yeah, I, I loved them. The, um, as I said, R75 slash 5, uh, 1973 was my favorite year, but, um, any of them, uh, I, I did have a, a 1975 R75 slash 6 that I wore out the brake arm on and wore holes in my rocker covers and, <laughs> and uh, wore the foot pegs off. Good for it's, you. Uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was an exciting bike to ride and, I, I I couldn't find that. I've I've ridden lots of other other bikes, and I could not find that in another bike. Yeah, yeah. I ever I think everybody listening will agree with that. And I had a, a slash five seven fifty a seventy three for, gosh, I had one for almost almost twenty years. Uh, and I great bike. Uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite things on that motorcycle was third gear on a good twisty road and oh yeah and you just had such a wide uh envelope of throttle response you know you weren't always having to downshift or upshift 
you could, you know, if you were in a good stretch of road, you know, where you could, you know, go moderately from, you know, anywhere from 35 to 60 or 65 or something like that, boy, that third gear would handle it all day. And it, it was a really unique feel and experience uh, riding that um, I haven't, I've never duplicated on any other brand or style of bike. So I know exactly what you're talking about there. Right. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and of course, with the large flywheel as well, Yeah. Um, you could you could get yourself in and out of trouble pretty easily. Yep. Yep, that's a good point. I want to ask you uh, a couple things uh, here moving up uh, dramatically in the timeline to more modern times here. Uh, there's an interesting uh, – you and I have uh, met and sort of crossed paths on uh, Adventure Rider, uh, which has a real active uh, airhead forum. Uh, a lot of great guys on there. There was an uh, interesting story about a fella who bought, um, I guess it was a 92 or 93 uh, R100 Paris Dakar and broke down somewhere near you and got in touch with you and you helped sort of get him back on the road. Tell me a little bit about that experience. I think that's one thing uh, any not unique to BMW motorcycles. I think just unique to car or vehicle enthusiasts. If you can help a fellow rider out, uh, you're always happy to do it. And I, that sounds like that was you in this case. So f if you can fill me in a little on that backstory and how, how it all turned out. Oh, it was a, a, a gentleman just bought a bike Yeah, and it wasn't, it turned out not to be, not to be quite as presented uh, he was doing a, a, a fly and ride situation, and uh, there were a few things uh, at, at, that weren't quite right with it that he was afraid to ride the bike home uh, and was thinking about shipping it. And uh, I saw on ADV that mm -hmm. he was having some problems and he wasn't far away, so I just went ahead and, and said, well, you know, bring it around, let's have a look at it and see if we can sort you out enough to get home. And I, I, in all honesty, I thought the way he was presenting it, that it was uh, in such bad shape that, that basically all I could do was uh, help him find some way of trucking it back, which didn't turn out to be the case. Um, the bike was actually, it wasn't very well cared for, but with my uh, knowledge and history of BMW, uh, they will go for a long way and still not be correct. You know, it may not run right or, <laughs> yeah. or that sort of thing, but you can still go a very long way. It's not going to leave you at the side of the road. It's a very forgiving motorcycle to the novice mechanic. Well, uh, that's one way there, of putting there it. There you go. Yes. yes, exactly. And so what he did was he, uh, I, I gave him directions to get to my place, and he brought it over here. And what I did was the, the only way that I, I do things is – I stood him, he, you know, he put it on a bench in my garage and I said, now pull out your, pull out your toolkit. And I explained to him what he had to do. And I stood there while he went through, uh, the parts that he was questionable about. And I barely laid a hand on the motorcycle. Yeah. That's the only way you learn. That's right. Just to be able to, you know, you're forced to do it yourself. So you, you, you figure it out. Yeah, good for you. So, yeah, I can imagine if I was in that scenario, yeah, I would have, you know, gotten a lawn chair, 
gone to the fridge, got a beer, sat down and just, you know, sort of walked him through, let him twist the wrenches while you sort of oversee what's going on. So what were the issues, what needed corrected uh, to, to get him back on the road, if any? Well, the uh, the main thing was is looking through the motor to make sure that everything was all right with it. It had, uh, you know, its usual oil leaks and things from, from not being cared for. Mm-hmm. But uh, the main thing was is just checking things to make sure that there was no um, valve recession or, or things of that nature that that would give him trouble on the way home. And we pulled off the he pulled off the rocker covers and uh, we adjusted the valves. I showed him how to rotate the motor uh, while, while the bike is up on the bench and up on the center stand. And yeah, it, it just went. It was pretty pretty ordinary kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was nothing fantastically wrong about the bike. Um, except it was a little ratty, and uh, it wasn't cared for, and it did have some oil leaks, but nothing that was going to strand him. So it sounded like he just needed a little confidence builder. Yeah, I think so, because after we uh, did the little bits of work on the motor, um, and I told him, I said, you know, everything here looks just fine. I think you'll make it home just fine. And so, yeah, it was after that bit of confidence, I, I think he was ready, and by golly, he made it all the way home. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, I can't recall the name of the thread, but uh, if anybody's on uh, ADV, uh, yeah, I think there was a, pretty much a happy ending to that story, and uh, the learning process goes on uh, for the fellow. That was a purple uh, PD, if I remember correctly. That's right, purple yeah. and white. Yep. And it, uh, even to this day, he's still still managing to fiddle with it but uh, <laughs> I, i'm afraid my my opinion is is don't go looking for trouble i guess while it's running decently get out and put some miles on it yeah and if you want to monkey around with it that's what winter time is for uh, i i've seen uh, you mentioned that in a number of posts and you know quite frankly i couldn't uh, couldn't agree with you more uh on that regard speaking of adv uh you just finished a neat build uh, folks can find it if you're on Adventure Rider, uh, and I'm not a shill for ADV here. This just happens to be where a lot of folks hang out, including the two of us, among others. Uh, you just finished a neat build called The Lost Cause, uh, which is yep. a, essentially a, a, a paraf- uh, making a paraphrase this with a broad, broad brush. I guess it's really a custom uh, conversion, uh, if I'm using the term there, right? So a slash two frame with a later model uh, engine, transmission and stuff. Tell me just a little bit about uh, what got you interested in that build and uh, how, how are you liking the bike now? Okay, I've got a few directions to go on this one. Yeah. Um, but I'll start off with, uh, I, I put an advertisement on Craigslist looking for a uh, R69 parts, because uh, I have a 57 R69 that I'm, I'm very slowly uh, rebuilding. And uh, a fella from up in uh, Wyoming said, well, I've got this BMW, and I want $500 for it, and it doesn't run. And if you'd like it, we can arrange things. So I drove up there. Um, it took me a good part of the day to drive there. I looked at the bike. It wasn't what I wanted, but it uh, was a 1973 R75 um, in absolutely hideous condition. <laughs> the bike had the bike had been crashed. It had been burned. It had been left outside. Good grief! Um, and I, I ended up buying it with a title for four hundred dollars. 
and uh, I brought it home, um, took most of the parts off that were just absolute trash, and that's where they went, was in the trash. Uh, but I, I have, I, all through the years, I, I collect parts. And um, the BMW store that I used to work at here in Fort Collins um, had been sold. And so what it was was they, um, um, the new owner didn't want any of the good used parts that were on the shelves, so they started filling the dumpster. Oh, you got to so be the, kidding me. Uh, no, the, the salesman knew me and phoned me up and said, man, you got to get up here. This guy's just throwing all this stuff away. Unbelievable. So I went up. I went up there in my pickup truck, and I just started. I cl- actually climbed inside the dumpster, and they have—they <laughs> took photographs of me inside the dumpster. And uh, yeah, packed up on the wall. Yeah, the I was just going to say, I can. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, there's a photo, and all we see is your two feet out of the top of the dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, I just—I just totally loaded up the back of the back of my truck. So I mean, what? Some things that I. What I were you finding? Want. I mean, what kind of parts were they throwing away? Uh, complete wheels. Oh, good God! Um, uh, a couple of a couple of transmissions. A um, let's see, uh, several swing arms, uh, some rear drives. Um, there was one engine case, um, and there was two or three frames. But I I already have frames, so I kind of left those there. And uh, yeah, there was all kinds of. Of course, the the, the good parts. There wasn't any of those. Right. Uh, there wasn't any fenders. There wasn't any seats. There wasn't any <laughs> gas tanks. There right. wasn't any headlights. Those are all the expensive stuff. <laughs> Still. And going back to, going back to this build, uh, after I got the bike home, it was locked up solid, and I actually had to um, use a. I, I made a thing to hang onto the cylinder, and actually had to use a hydraulic press to get the piston out without ruining everything. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, everything went from there. The frame was bent. The, uh, like I said, there wasn't much there, but I got a title. So use it, utilizing that and some stuff I already had, I started moving forward. Now I couldn't, I didn't have the expensive parts like the fenders and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So what I did was I, I, after I rebuilt the motor, um, and the transmission, I had a slash two frame and, and some swing arms and stuff. So I, I just thought, well, you know, if I, rather than having this frame straightened, I will go ahead and just go from there. Now, the frame that I used, uh, so as not to tick off anybody, okay. uh, the frame that I used was a leftover frame from a chopper that somebody had made. And they had cut off every single mount for anything <laughs> on that frame. Wow. Um, it was the basic frame yeah. with the engine mounts in place, but it never had uh, center stand mounts, it never had a battery mount, never had fender mounts, never had, uh, you know, you get the picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, what I did was I created any of those parts that I needed. Um, I didn't buy any. I actually created them here in my shop, like the sidecar mounts and, and things of that nature. The flat plate that is used for the... Um, seat mounting on a slash two that was all cut off and i didn't replace that because i i wanted to do something different so i uh i made my own seat and uh put the padding in and had it had it recovered professionally so it looked nice and pretty the uh gas tank i used was off of a slash seven so it was it was one of the ones that was very shapely like an r90s but that gas tank had come off of a, a bike that had been severely damaged in a wreck 
um, and one side was almost totally crushed in. The, even the even the petcocks were at odd angles because the tank had got torn off of the frame and went tumbling off all by itself. <laughs> um, so I I took that and I beat out. Well, what I did was I basically cut the tank almost in half and uh, tapped out what I could and um, put a new uh, new fuel filler on and and modified the side of the tank so I could have my own dashboard because there's no way I could afford the you know, buying a new BMW headlight and that sort of thing. So I decided to go my own route, which was uh, I made a little dashboard for the side with lights and things on it and, and used a, um, utilized a, a chrome headlight that was intended for a, uh, a hot rod. I have that on the side rather than in the usual place up front. And the area that is taken up by the, that is usually taken up by the headlight and the fork ears, I put a little mount on there and uh, bought a rat fink mascot. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And they, afterwards, uh, when I was ready for it, I had a local painter um, paint it for me. Who is, I'd never had a metal flake motorcycle, so I decided, by golly, I better have one. <laughs> so it's it's painted red metal flake with a, a cream white stripe down the middle. Yeah, it's a it's a really unique uh, a really unique build. You've Re, you know, lost cause. I think I sort of get the uh, get the idea behind the naming there. Meaning, you know, a lot of these parts and pieces uh, of the bike that you use were kind of a lost cause, and you were uh, with some creativity and ingenuity were able to put it all together uh, and form just a really unique uh, looking motorcycle. How 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 did it? Um, how did it meet your expectations as far as, you know, riding and, you know, how did it perform? And, you know, have, have you had any big surprises uh, now that you've had it out on the road a little bit? No, no surprises. Good, good. <laughs> how, how boring is that? <laughs> uh, it, it does, it, it, it rides, it rides like I had hoped it would. Okay, good. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fabulous bike to ride. It runs really, really well. So, yeah, it, it does everything I expected it to do. And, of course, my expectations when I build something are usually pretty high. So, yeah, it's, it's a great bike to ride. Excellent. Well, why I, originally called it, why I originally called it Lost Cause is because I strongly feel that anybody who bought this motorcycle, if they were silly enough to buy it, like I was, um, they would have parted it out. Yeah. It would, have, it would have never seen the light of day again. Yeah. And so I... That's why I called it a lost cause, but I have since changed its name okay. because it has one headlight on the side, and rather than in the usual spot, I've, I've renamed it Cyclops. Um, and, and to go along with that, I say uh, um, rushing ahead or forging ahead with one eye open. <laughs> so. Very appropriate. Very appropriate. Well... Again, not to uh, be a shill here for uh, ADV Rider, but uh, for those of you who want to check it out, there's a great build thread on the Airhead section. Uh, just look up Lost Cause and uh, some great reading uh, there and lots of great photos of the bike as well. One of the reasons so many Airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. 
Boxer 2 valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. All right, now back to our final segment with Pokey Parmage. All right, Pokey, I want to get you out of here on just a handful of questions. I really appreciate uh, your time uh, visiting with me today. It's been a lot of fun reminiscing uh, about your days working back in the dealer. First thing I want to ask you, Pokey, your Mount Rushmore uh, for the Airhead 247 run. So the four motorcycles you would carve on the mountainside, I want the year, uh, the model, and the color, please, if you don't mind. Of the 247 model? Yes. I would only have one. Okay. I would only have one. Okay, fair enough. And that, and that would be a 1973 R75-5 long wheelbase, and it would have to be in red with white pinstriping. All right. So only one makes it to the Mount Rushmore for you. Fair enough. Um, Great so. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll accept that. We'll accept that. What's, uh, given all your experience, especially with the Slash 5 and Slash 6 series, uh, but not uh, just those models, all the others, what's one design element uh, of the 247 series that uh, if you could go back in time and change, what would that be? Well, the only thing that ever bothered me about the uh, about the bikes coming up was the, the transmission in the uh, Flash 6 series. Um, yeah, big mistake. <laughs> and Now, everybody, everybody wanted a five-speed transmission, and, yeah, I'm fine with that. But the way they went about it, um, particularly the early ones, the 74s and 75s, um, it was so easy to trash those transmissions um, because of the fact they were underbuilt. That uh, I think that was probably one of the biggest mistakes that BMW ever made. Wow. And so in particular, what were the, for folks who aren't familiar with that, what were the, uh, in your opinion, what were the inherent problems uh, with, with that model run of transmissions? Well, it's, it's, it wouldn't be of my opinion. It would be of what really happened. Okay. And that is uh, the, the uh, dogs on the, on the gears were made far too thin, and so they would snap off, and uh, you'd you'd lose that gear. Um, and the other thing that uh, the other thing that was just a, a manufacturing problem that uh, that was corrected, and that was the uh, the shift return spring. Um, it, it was put on a shaft that was too large, so that when the spring 
uh, tightened up to change gears, it, it would tighten onto the shaft, and then the the leg of the spring itself would flex. Oh. And it wasn't designed to do that. Yeah. And so eventually that spring would break, and it would leave you in whatever gear uh, you you found that it happened, and you'd be stuck. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. yeah, those two things, absolutely horrible, uh, 74, 75 transmission. Um, they did things to try and cure it. And uh, what what I had to do during that period of time was was turn down the, um, the shaft that the spring was on. Uh, it only took a few thousandths, but enough to uh, allow the spring to do its job properly. And with the... Uh, counter shaft, which was where all the problems were, we you couldn't get parts for the shaft itself. Right. What you could do was buy a whole complete shaft. Yep. Which was at that time was twelve hundred dollars. Oh, jeez. So uh, yeah, it was uh, one of those things you just had to deal with, and thankfully we got most of them replaced on uh, warranty. But the sad part was that the warranted part was the same. <laughs> so it's basically a time bomb. Yeah, the never-ending uh, cycle. So I guess really the best case scenario there is if you've got a 74, 75 transmission finder, uh, you could use uh, 77, 76 through 78. I know uh, some of the later models are still compatible there. That would probably be your recommendation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, if you if you are one of the picky ones who um, need to have a plain case, uh, you could just put all the later parts into the early case. And yeah. Make it straight in. Yeah. There you go. All right. Fair enough. Um, what is Pokey's best or worst uh, roadside breakdown and or repair? So the way I always phrase <laughs> phrase this is. Something that happened where you had a breakdown and you miraculously saved the day and got the bike running again somehow, or it was just a total shit show and you had to call a pickup truck or a friend and abort the mission. Well, uh, I can take you take you back to just one bike that I had absolutely so much trouble with. Um, it was a bike for a fellow who bought it up in high-level Alberta. And I tried to deliver it a couple of times to him, and the way to deliver it was to ride it up to him and then uh, fly back to uh, fly back to Edmonton and then back to Vancouver. So what it what had happened was I it was my responsibility to take this bike and put some miles on it. So I would take it out and took it home that, and I had it for you know a couple of weeks ahead of time. So I put miles on it, and I would take it on rides. I'd put my mother on the back and we'd go off and check out back roads to loosen up the suspension. Yeah. And, um, at one point, um, (laughs) it's, uh, several things happened to this bike. Um, I was riding on a back road and a tree came down. And so we, I went to skirt around the, the tree and the back wheel caught the edge of the road and it actually drug us off the road backwards and uh, it was so steep that um, anybody who was passing by, which was basically nobody, uh, <laughs> they would just see the very tip of the front tire. <laughs> it was pointed basically straight up in the air. Gosh, so yeah, okay, yeah. I, 
I helped my mom get up the incline, and we were standing on the road, and some folks in a four-wheel drive came along, and they were going to cut up this tree to get it off of the road. And I explained to them that I had a little bit of a problem. <laughs> and they they took out their uh, their winch and actually winched the bike back up. Didn't do any damage to the bike at all, but uh, winched it back up onto the road. And from there, um, after that was finished, uh, I decided to take it out and you know, ride it some more. And then one day came, well, okay, this is delivery day. Let's take it up to, to high level Alberta. So I left, uh, left the shop that morning and I got just outside of Hope, which was about 90 miles. And the bike started making a horrible clatter. And, um, I thought, Oh my God, what's happened here? I'm going to, it sounds like, uh, sounds like all of the, uh, the valves, valve adjusters have undone. And so everything was just rattling and knocking. So I, I rode it the rest of the way into Hope. And as it came down to an idle, of course, the oil light came on. So I shut the motor completely off right away. And um, it seems the camshaft had broke. Oh, good grief. <laughs> it broke just before the uh, oil pump. So it was the way it was rolling around inside the motor. It was it was doing this ellipse while the motor was running. So it was still operating the valves and it was still operating the oil pump, but only just. Yeah. So after the RPM went down, it wasn't operating the oil pump anymore. So that's why the light came on. So that one, I'm afraid, I had to be rescued on that one. <laughs> I'd say um, and so. They, the shop had to come out and get me. And after we replaced the camshaft oh by golly everything is great let's go and do it again so i i I took it out to deliver it and i got up to uh dawson creek um and that morning that i was going to go from dawson creek to high level i started the bike up and the transmission was making a horrible racket and it was because of the overshim of 1970 oh yeah and so uh, I couldn't have anybody come and rescue me because they were two days away. So I called down to the shop, and uh, Philip put all of the transmission tools into a crate, a small crate, and put it on a Greyhound bus and sent it up to me. So when, when the Greyhound bus arrived, I was able to get all the tools. I went out behind a, um, an, auto, an um, auto sales area. And took the transmission out. I, there was a fellow who I was talking to who was, uh, he would repair snowmobiles. And so he and I were getting it on a little bit and talking about things. And I was using his solvent tank to clean things. And when it came time to uh, pull the back off the transmission, the only thing I could do was put um, duct tape around the edges, pour gasoline on it, and light it. Oh, to heat it so, up, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he didn't have a torch. And I couldn't afford to buy one. So uh, I'm here behind this car dealership um, with this black plume of smoke coming up. And all the, all the, uh, all the car salesmen were running back there with fire extinguishers wondering what the hell is going on. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, but I, I was able to pull the transmission back and um, fit the new bearing. And I checked out the rest of them. Everything else seemed to be fine. But I fit the new bearing, and, and with the tools sent to me and a, and a package of shims, wow. I was able to re-shim it and um, put it all back together, sent, sent the tools back up, to, uh, back up to the shop on Greyhound, 
and I was able to complete my journey. Wow, that is uh, that is very impressive. The lighting, the transmission on fire, I think, is really the highlight of the story for me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> You had to heat it up, and that's what it took, and you got it done. Yep. I, I honestly, I think that's <laughs> that's the best one to date. Uh, I've heard that's a really good one. Okay, uh, Pokey, is there? I, I know your affinity for the uh, slash five, and also I guess the seventy-five slash six. Duly noted here. Uh, is there happened? Is there another Airhead model you haven't owned that you would maybe like to own, or? Or maybe let me rephrase that. Is there another bike maybe that you've owned in the past that you'd like to get back in your garage? Uh, All of the bikes that I've had, all the BMWs I've had, um, for me, have been kind of a a little love situation until I sell them. And then I move on to the next one. And that becomes the love of my life until that one sells. And I mean, it's just the way it goes. But the the one bike that I would really love to uh, have and who I, that I missed out on uh, while I was while I was working for Philip, and that was a uh, 1937 R5. Oh yeah. And I just find them so gorgeous that, uh, and at the time I, I could have had one for fifteen hundred dollars, but wow. you know, making a dollar sixty-five an hour, I couldn't <laughs> afford it. Yeah, that definitely wasn't in the cards. All right, so let's wrap this up, Pokey, uh, with the question everybody loves to answer. What oil do you run in your airheads? I run the kind of oil that lubricates things. (laughs) Seriously, is there a brand uh, in particular that you use uh, for any reason, or is it just I need some 2050 or whatever you put in there and and that gets it done? Yeah, it's just oil. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I do not have a favorite brand. Um, when I was in Canada, of course, working at the shop, we used all Quaker State. Uh, when I came down here, um, everybody liked using Penn's oil. Um, I don't care if if it's, uh, you know, if the bike needs oil, you put oil in it, and I'll, I'll take it from anywhere and put any kind of oil in it. It's uh, the one thing I do stress is if it's a slash two, or an earlier bike that uses slingers, um, you use a straight-grade non-detergent. Other than that, yeah, any oil to get it down the road. Fair enough. All right, so we mentioned a couple of uh, the build. We mentioned your build thread on ADV, uh, the Lost Cause thread. Now uh, you might, I don't know, you can maybe change the title to Cyclops. Uh, And then also you did send me uh, a couple, uh, some links to some to a web page or a few different web pages uh, that tell uh, in some more detail some of the stories we covered uh, today, and also um, your time and experience with the 1200C, the cruiser. Uh, if folks want to find uh, some additional information out on the web, what what's the uh, a Google search or what do they type in to, to find that out? you basically have to do is just uh, key in pokey and and motorcycle and it'll probably take you there perfect or at least give you one of the options perfect perfect and and that's spelled p-o-k-i-e not e-y got it got it all right well look pokey what a great as i mentioned earlier is great uh picking your brain going back in time to the 70s and revisiting uh all those great experiences you had Uh, i want to thank you for sharing uh, your time with us today, your knowledge uh, with everybody on the forums, helping out riders like you recently did, and 
Oh, sorry. I just knocked the microphone there. Uh, and uh, continue, <laughs> con continued success uh, in everything we do and everything you do. And we'll look forward to catching up with you again down the road. Sounds good. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it. Thanks so much to Pokey Parmage for joining us. Great insight and interesting conversation. We're really fortunate to have folks like him join us to recount all those great stories from back in the day. Well done, Pokey. Remember, drop us a line anytime, airheads247 at hotmail.com. We enjoy hearing from everyone. We're still collecting stories and photos for the Survivor Series 247s. Drop us a line. Let us know what you got. So long for now. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.